0: I'm Melanie Sayward, and you are tuning in to The Pink Elephant. Hey there, welcome to The Pink Elephant podcast, where we cover the most undiscussed issue in the body of Christ today, that despite all we know, it can feel like there is something missing in our faith experience. When I was a teenager, I flat out did not believe that you could experience peace. I hear people talk about it at school, youth groups, and of course, when I started attending church, but I just thought it was utter baloney. I I just did not believe it. And, you know, I don't think I ever verbalized it, but I just remember thinking that, you know, every adult I knew was stressed in some way or another, and usually taking some aspect of that stress out on someone else. Yeah, um, I was pretty cynical. Anyway, now that I'm an adult and I realise how challenging it is to juggle the responsibilities of life, I'm far less critical of those adults I observed when I was young. But I guess the truth is I also couldn't imagine living with peace myself. I couldn't even comprehend what peace would feel like. I just had so little of it. When I was working on staff at a church several years ago, I remember having a dream that involved polar bears chasing me. I won't bore you with the details, although I know some of you find these dreams quite amusing, but in one part of the dream, I'm able to evade the polar bears by hiding in a crevice of snow. After much prayer, I came to understand that the polar bears represented a spiritual attack that would be coming my way. And boy, was it right. God showed me that the crevice of snow represented peace and that my protection against this spiritual attack was peace but of course I had spent all those years denying peace consciously and subconsciously so I guess I had some work to do what in the world was peace if peace would be my protection I needed to understand how how would I know if I had peace Well, this month's episode is all about what I discovered when I started to dig into the topic of peace and, of course, the pink elephants that surround this topic. So let's begin. One of the first things I did in order to understand and define peace was to look up every reference to the word peace in Scripture. And, of course, I found out there was much more to this word than I thought. It is multi-layered. It is a multi-faceted word. The most common word used for peace in scripture is shalom and it's probably the one that we are all the most familiar with as well and yet even this word means much more than simply peace as we would describe peace. But I want to begin at a slightly different place than I usually start. I usually start by just jumping in and defining the word and all that kind of stuff but I want to start somewhere else. What do we actually think peace is? What do we think it is? Not what the scriptures say. When I've heard Christian people talk about peace, I've often gotten the sense that we think of it as calmness or stillness, which I suppose is a component of peace. But no matter how calm I am or still I am, I can't say that I have felt peaceful necessarily because of those two ideas and concepts being real. But I also get the sense by what believers say that peace is like a spiritual energy. It's simply something that the Holy Spirit imparts onto us or into us and we incorporate it. And certainly when Jesus said, my peace I give to you, there is this implication that peace is received and not necessarily obtained. But I'm fairly certain you would not be significantly different to me in that I've had so many people pray in my life that I would have peace in a specific situation but I can't really say that it has changed anything so if Jesus has given us peace and it's primarily received why don't we experience it more how many things in our life would be greatly improved if we experienced the peace that Jesus apparently gave us therefore we must go deeper what are we missing about peace let's go back to the original question what is peace Okay, firstly, the word shalom can mean calmness, it can mean tranquility, and even just quietness. But it also can mean contentment, wholeness, and safety. So if you want to experience peace, we need to understand these elements of peace, contentment, wholeness, and safety. I've talked about contentment at length in episode five of season one, but a brief definition for the sake of this episode would be to be full, to be satisfied. Psalm 23 verse one says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Another version says, I lack no good thing this was not a superficial statement David wasn't declaring and speaking into being the reality that he sought he had a unique perspective he likely said this when he was a lonely shepherd boy he was satisfied well before he received any recognition any praise and any authority have you ever had those moments in life where you feel this deep inner joy This is the exact type of statement you would make in that circumstance. I've had a fair few moments throughout my life where I'm overlooking my backyard, basking in the Saturday afternoon sun with a cup of tea in my hand and enjoying the sight of my daughter playing quietly and I've thought, this is it. This is all I need. Or maybe it's been hanging out with close friends, laughing with a few chunks of cheese on a platter whilst the sun sets, and I thought, it can't get better than this. I understand what David was saying. He is saying, my heart is full. Yes, we need food, we need water, but when you have the Lord as your shepherd, your needs are taken care of, which means you don't lack. You certainly don't lack all that is good. The Lord is all you need. And you can imagine the kind of peace and rest this perspective would bring to your life if you were to truly believe it. Okay, so that's contentment. So let's now talk about wholeness. Now, this word is so interesting to me because we seem to inherently desire wholeness, but it's actually really difficult to define. Wholeness is like inner wellness but, like, it's even more than that. It's, it's a wellness and harmony between our heart, our mind, and our soul. It's like inner unity. Now, if you think about it, the heart, mind, and soul can be on a different path in terms of what they want. The soul is a very complicated concept. So for simplicity's sake, we're just going to consider the heart and the mind. The heart and mind are not always in agreement. A classic example is when someone is trying to get over a breakup the heart still desires the person. They still desire to be with that person. But the mind is often trying to push the heart to move on. It just wants to get over it. it. wants to move forward. And some of the distress experienced by this newly single person is because of the tension between these two parts within them. So wholeness is this absence of like inner conflict. And we can't downplay the significance of this inner conflict. Paul describes the warring between the flesh and the spirit, which may be a nuance of the same heart, mind, soul phenomenon, or maybe it's something else altogether. I don't know. But he says this in Romans 7, verse 19 For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. Paul is describing this warring that he wants to do good, but he can't seem to do good this is what's going on within him and often within us. Then of course, there are the internal conflicts of unrealistic expectations. For example, perfectionism. Then there's harmful mindsets and belief systems like narcissism, a victim mentality, poverty, or one that Christians ought to be really aware of, legalism and self-righteousness. There's unworthiness, there's over-responsibility, there's people-pleasing, and there's entitlement. All of these and many other belief systems that exist can be simultaneously warring within us. These internal tensions don't make us very comfortable. They create pressure. Of course, every person differs in the degree of pressure they can handle, but the pressure is still there when we don't have wholeness. The pressure also often shows up in other ways. It can manifest physically A very common problem and somewhat obvious one is the way in which stress causes tension in the neck and shoulders, and I think everyone just sat up a little bit straighter when I said that. It often leads to headaches and back problems. Another one is digestive issues. We often begin to struggle with digestive issues in highly stressful situations, but even the everyday stresses have an impact on our digestive health. And then there's sleep disturbance and fatigue and coughs and colds. You know, you can pick up coughs and colds just because of stress. All of this can be symptomatic of internal conflicts and internal pressure. And our attempts to resolve such tension is not usually through a commitment to this, you know, long, arduous journey of genuine open-heartedness to some kind of internal reorientation. We usually seek that when the turmoil has reached a damaging level that demands some kind of intervention often the rest of the time we're seeking momentary relief. And I'm not talking about self-medication and the escapisms like drinking and drugs. We usually point the finger at these escapisms because we want to highlight how the world isn't coping, assuming that drugs and alcohol are escapisms that are so far from being options for believers. But we have our own socially acceptable escapisms in the body of Christ, like food, Food is a common form of justifiable self-medication in Christian circles. And I'm not even talking about overeating, even just the ridiculous level of self-indulgence that we seek on a regular basis. Spending money can be a form of self-medication. Coffee can be a form of self-medication, as my husband likes to call it, the Christian drug. Even judgment can be a form of self-medication. It's a sin that we gravitate to, And big surprise, it makes us feel good about ourselves to point out the foolishness of others. So when Jesus said, my peace I give you, in John 14, verse 27, the statement naturally implies that Jesus has peace, that he has, like, peace to give. And we assume that Jesus has peace because we agree that he was and is indeed perfect, and it stands to reason that he would have peace if he is perfect. But this also means that he is also perfectly whole. Jesus says this very thought-provoking statement in Matthew 12:25. He says, "Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand." In this specific context, he is responding to the Pharisees who suggest that he can cast out demons because he must be a demon himself. But the verse applies more broadly. The analogy works because it's true. A kingdom will eventually come to ruin because of division. A city or a household will not stand where conflict exists. In our modern day terms, you would expect that a company with incessant infighting will eventually suffer for it or a church that continues to have unresolved conflicts. But it also can extend to our inner conflicts. With all the pressure that could be warring within us, it is unlikely that we will be able to sustain ourselves in the long run. There will always be a form of suffering for such a life. It could be physical, it could be psychological or emotional. It could even be what we have so often described as burnout. And therefore, to prevent burnout, We must pursue wholeness. Now there's one occasion in which it kind of looks like Jesus is having an inner conflict. When he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. From this statement, it's obvious that there is some aspect of the plan that Jesus is struggling to contemplate. We would guess that it would be the pain that he knows he is about to endure. However, he is completely in agreement, heart, mind and soul, that he will do as the Father wills. We see that not only from the fact that he says so, but also by the fact that he has done nothing to change the situation. Now, the truth about Jesus' situation is that he actually does have choices. He could run away. In fact, his time at Gethsemane when he's alone praying may have been his prime opportunity to run. He could have attacked the soldiers when they come to gather him and in that way he probably would be the Messiah the Jewish people really wanted at the time. He could have used all the power in his hands and demonstrated his position in the kingdom as the enemy once tempted him to do all the way back in the desert. He could have sought out a much less gruesome death. Like, I mean, it sounds awful, but he could have taken his own life. Look, anyway, the point of saying all of this is is to say that Jesus had options that could have made the cup pass from him. But he didn't do any of it because his heart, mind and soul were in total agreement that he would not pass the cup of his own volition, that he would go through whatever it was that the Father wanted him to and that he would always do what the Father had said. This is wholeness, unity in mind, heart and soul. This kind of unity compels all other outlying thoughts to be submitted and surrendered to the overriding unifying belief, which for him was, I must do what the father wills. How much do we need this in today's age? Let's now briefly talk about safety. There are a lot of scriptures that talk about safety and often they speak of physical safety because, of course, they were often at the mercy of nature where, you know, animals or the elements or, you know, tribes that were barbaric would be, you know, pursuing them. And in the case of David, you know, he was being pursued by this delusional king. Our sense of safety contributes greatly to whether we feel peace. Psalm 4 verse 8 says... In peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. David has peace because he knows he is safe. Of the promised land, Leviticus tells us that safety was a significant aspect of the appeal of the promised land. It says in Leviticus 25 verse 19, Then the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and live there in safety. The promised land represented a place of safety, a place where the Israelites could be carefree. In this way, peace is the absence of fear that is associated with security and we desire security. Boy, do we desire security. We don't believe we can be confident until we have it. Even when we have physical safety, there are still risks to relational and emotional safety. In fact, that is probably the more significant risk we experience here in the modern world. Relational safety may be the threat of domestic violence, of theft, of sexual assault, even fraud and deceit and betrayal. It's the kind of safety that involves person against person. This threat can come from anywhere, even those who are closest to us. I recently watched a series called The Shrink Next Door, which is based on a true story of a psychologist, Dr. Ike Hershkoff, who basically took over the life of one of his patients. He was a wealthy business owner and his his name was Marty Markovitz, right? It is a sordid tale of manipulation and selfish ambition. You know, Dr. Ike basically successfully baits Marty into cutting all ties with any family members and friends that stood in the way of him vicariously living through the wealth of Marty. There was this kind of life that Dr. Ike wanted to have and he could only have it by being wealthy and so basically used Marty to achieve that for himself. Now this is what I would call a threat to relational safety and we do have a lot of them today. Relational safety existed in scripture too. But it's certainly what accounts for people's low trust and reservations these days because so many of us have had our sense of relational safety broken, sometimes quite early in life. We can't be ourselves for two seconds without someone criticising and harshly condemning our actions. And the world has gotten so brutal when it comes to this whole criticism thing too. You know, in, in fact, like criticism is a valid form of humour. The more brutal you are, the more popular. Now, it may seem harmless to us as observers, and we laugh along, but it certainly plants some seeds subconsciously about how safe we all really are to be ourselves. So let's imagine, if at all possible, stop what you are doing for a second. Of course, only if it is safe to do so, okay? Now, if you can, close your eyes and imagine with me combining these three experiential concepts. Use all the powers of your imagination right now to feel what these three concepts operating simultaneously must feel like, contentment, wholeness, and safety. Being content, remember, is being satisfied. Being whole is internal unity. And being safe is secure and even carefree. If you can imagine what all three combined would feel like, then you have just experienced a taste of peace or at least you have a vision now of what peace is like. That's what is available to us in Christ. The real challenge then is how in the world do we experience all of that? And herein lies the reason for this episode the pink elephant in the Christian world. All right, let's go deeper. Again, Jesus said, my peace I give to you in John 14, 27, which means we can only assume that true peace, the kind Jesus has, is already within us, probably via the Holy Spirit's residency within us. So there must be some kind of obstruction to that peace. If peace is contentment, wholeness and safety, At least two of those are most obviously a product of renewing the mind. I'm referring to contentment and wholeness here. But arguably, even safety is a renewing of the mind experience. So either we are struggling to experience peace because we A haven't gotten deep enough to recognize the counterfeits we pursue and accept that prevent us from experiencing real peace, or B, we haven't gone deep enough to understand how the gospel is meant to change how content, whole and safe we are. And in truth, it's probably A and B. So let's talk about category A. There are many things we often pursue hoping to find peace. Let me give you an example of something we pursue to feel safe, financial security. And I fall into this temptation hard and often. The idea is that if we are able to achieve a certain financial status, we won't have to worry about money anymore because money and our financial situation is a really significant cause of stress for people. It's a common reason people divorce. It's a very significant stressor for church leaders and in fact might be the real reason there is such a pursuit for numbers. More bums on seats means more money on the offering plate. It's a big reason why people don't pursue their dreams or ideas that could really resolve significant issues in this world. And it's a big reason why people don't give to charitable causes. And I get it. For any person who lives in Sydney who has not inherited great wads of cash or didn't get into the market 10 to 15 years ago, you know that on paper, the likelihood of owning here is pretty much none. So believe me when I say that financial security sounds good, it sounds really good, it sounds like a no-brainer actually. But the whole premise is that finances would give us a sense of safety, as though money is our protector. But when I listen to rich people talk about money, a lot of them will tell you that money doesn't take away the stress. In fact, a lot of the time, it increases it. Now I'm not rich but we recently sold our house in Brisbane and we walked away with a lump sum of money that we've never had before. We've never had that size of money before and we may never see a lump sum like that again. I can't even explain to you the stress it produced in us as a family. We inevitably had to buy things because we moved into a new home with almost zero furniture but it was like the amount in the bank was inextricably linked to my stress levels. When it started to go down, my stress levels went up. There are rich people who have written songs like Mo Money, Mo Problems. I think you might have had to be born in the maybe 80s to know that song. I don't know. Anyway, yeah, we sing along to the song, but we don't believe them. In the case of Notorious B.I.G., who did write that song, Admittedly, a truly confusing song with lyrics that both praised the lifestyle he afforded and complained about money problems. Well, anyway, Biggie had experienced low levels of income in his life and high levels of income, and he still wrote this chorus. He may have very well pursued wealth because he too thought being rich would make him feel safe. And then he was murdered. So, you know, financial security doesn't give us the safety we really desire. Now, if I said this to any of my relatives, besides thinking I'm completely bonkers, they would probably correct me and say, No, 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 Mel, it's not that I want to be financially secure. I just want to be comfortable. Well, my friends, comfort is often a counterfeit for safety too. And peace. Comfort is overrated. When I was most comfortable in my life, I was working in a great paying job, earning all the accolades with a great title to my job as well that was fun to drop at parties. I was travelling, I was blowing my money on expensive food, clothes, jewellery, all that kind of stuff. But I was a shallow person in denial about everything and when I faced genuine hardship, I had no resilience. The problem with being comfortable is that we are still looking to a destination or a situation or objects, including money. To decide for us the level of ease and relaxation we should have. It's not real peace. And worse yet, it is actually terribly insecure. It can change so easily. It can disappear with a mistake, a misinterpretation, a diagnosis, a GFC, a pandemic. If being comfortable is actually a highly volatile circumstance, Have we considered how unwise it is to seek an insecure situation to resolve our insecurities? Real safety comes from knowing the shepherd and allowing him to be the shepherd while simultaneously learning and knowing how to be the sheep. If we really believed that we were cared for by God, as the analogy of the shepherd implies, we would feel relaxed. Now, category B how is the gospel meant to change how we experience peace? Well, we have to break that down. We have to say, how is the gospel meant to change how we experience contentment, wholeness, and safety? So let's first consider contentment. Firstly, we become satisfied relationally. God is meant to fulfill our needs for relationships. Not completely alone, of course, because we are meant to experience community here on earth too. But in him, we access a person that is perfect in every way, perfectly compassionate, perfectly attentive, perfectly selfless, kind, patient, loving. You get the picture. And his Holy Spirit resides within us. No other relationship could be this close and this accessible. Secondly, we no longer live from a place of lack. It may not always feel like that, especially when you don't have enough money to do XYZ or a home or whatever other practical needs we deal with. But the fact is, from the moment of conversion, we become his children. We are so blessed We receive as co-heirs. We're a new creation. The old has passed. We get a second chance with grace and no condemnation. We are righteous. We're forgiven. We're favoured and we're unconditionally loved. This is the starting point for us just simply by receiving Christ and it gets better from there. We get to co-labor with him in mission. We get to experience the Holy Spirit's power and anointing and so much more. We are not living from lack when we have Christ. Thirdly, we don't have to strive. No, I'm not saying that we don't make an effort, but we rest in the fact that the transformation process is primarily God's. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He, he who began it. We don't have to change ourselves in a rigorous, punishing way. We simply respond to his invitations. We abide in him and we open ourselves up in every way and follow him. So how then is the gospel meant to make us whole? Firstly, this is a huge one. He heals us. He heals our trauma and our pain. He heals the mindsets and the beliefs that have been harming us. Secondly, he changes our values. We can stop judging our value against the world's standards. We stop judging whether what we are doing is good enough, whether the job we have, the money we make, the houses we own and our looks are deemed good by their standards. In Christ, our value is not in any of those things. We are valuable because we are human beings, touched with the very image of God, made with detail and wonder, the greatest of all his creations. We are valuable because we breathe the breath that he first breathed into Adam and Eve. We are valuable enough for him to intimately know our thoughts and every action we take. He values us enough to take notice of us individually. Every idiosyncrasy, every trait is known by him, even before we were made in our mother's womb. His sacrifice on the cross was personal. He gently invites us every day to knit each part of us together into unity and wholeness through the personal leading of the Holy Spirit. And finally, the last question, how is the gospel meant to make us feel safe? You know, David spoke often of God as his fortress. A fortress was a place of safety. It was built with military knowledge and defensive resources and strategy in mind. It was meant to protect the inhabitants of that township. It is a warfare tactic to build a fortress, To call God his fortress as he does in so many verses including Psalm 18 verse 2 which says the Lord is my rock and my fortress, not to mention Psalm 59 verse 9, Psalm 91, Psalm 62 verse 2 and actually I could go on a lot more because there's a lot more references to this. But to call God his fortress denoted the incredible strength and might in which God holds in his hands and how truly at ease we can be because of his active and involved presence in our lives. But here's the conundrum we must face. And maybe it's the conundrum that we don't talk about a lot. God's protection doesn't remove all evil and hardship from our life. This is something I've grappled with so much. Being a believer didn't stop me from experiencing trauma. This awful thing that seemed like it has ruined my life in so many ways, that still rears its ugly head from time to time, shaming me as though I did something wrong. You know what I'm talking about. Hard things happen every day and some of those hard things aren't small. There are very legitimate threats out there. So how do we reconcile this? How can we see God as our protection when our safety Has already been lost. When David said these things, he was on the run. His life was being threatened by a madman that he once loved. He knew a thing or two about not feeling safe. So, how was he able to see God as his safety, as his fortress, when he clearly had real physical risks before him? Here's the truth that David understood. Our confidence in God's safety is not found in whether a set of circumstances will or will not occur. Our safety in God is knowing that we actually can handle whatever circumstance we find ourselves in because of what we have in Christ. When I was a really broken person, I couldn't say this. But now as a believer who is so reliant on God, and it's not because I'm superior either, but because I've had no choice but to, a believer who still makes mistakes and still has incredibly difficult days. I know because of the things I have been through with him, when I've been able to see his might firsthand, his faithfulness, his voice, his comfort and his love, These are the things that give me confidence that I am safe because of history. David had his history. He faced animals that he couldn't pacify. He faced the darkness, the threats. He faced Goliath. Saul was not necessarily the biggest threat he would face, though surely he was an adversary. He simply needed to remember all that he had come through because of God. Now that doesn't mean we don't have our fair share of wounds and pain. It wouldn't be the planet Earth if you didn't. You will have pain whether you try to avoid it or not. Jesus said in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Yes, you will have tribulation. You cannot avoid it. You will have distress on account of this world, its many evils and the presence of sin. We ought not to be surprised by that. But our courage, our confidence, our safety comes from his overcoming You know the saying that says, it says something like this, we didn't win the battle, but we won the war. Well, it's like Jesus is saying to us, I have won the war so you can win the battle. We don't become overcomers by attaching ourselves to these man-made, impermanent counterfeits of peace. We need to get them out of the way, no matter how difficult it is. Even though we have used them as a crutch for so long, Believers, I encourage you today, do whatever you can to remove every psychological barrier to contentment, wholeness and safety because the peace Jesus has given you is there underneath all the debris, all the muck. It's deep in there waiting for you to find it and experience it thanks for listening to this episode of The Pink Elephant. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or you can check out my resources on my website, meljsayward.com.